This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library Podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, we're reaching back in the archives to 2011, when NYPL welcomed John Lithgow, winner of numerous Emmys and Golden Globes and one of the most distinguished American actors of his generation. In a conversation with Peabody award-winning journalist Bill Moyers, Lithgow talks about not only his acting career, but also his authorship of numerous children's books, an anthology of poems, and most recently his memoir, Drama, An Actor's Education. Thank you very much for that welcome. We've just been told to switch seats. Oh, Bill. All right. Off to a bad, bad start. <laughs> what an entrance, huh? I usually am to the left of the guest, but uh, <laughs> yeah. not tonight. <laughs> for, uh, for John, all the stage is a world. And to us, he's given the gift of letting us share that world and that stage. Of the thousand or more hours of television I've done over the last 30 to 40 years, none touched me or the audience more than the hour that we did with John about 18, 24 months ago on Bill Moyer's journal. It came about because I'd had on my reading table for several months his little book, Poet's Corner. And every night, has been my custom ever since Inez Hughes at, in Marshall High School stood up and read poetry aloud to her students on the basis that we weren't smart enough or wise enough or experienced enough to read it ourselves, so she would play all the parts for us. I've read poetry as the evening came and the night descended and sleep arrived. And for those months, I had this book, The Poet's Corner, on my reading table. Lo and behold, John moved into our building at 151 Central Park West, putting to test the imperative, thou shalt love that neighbor as thyself. <laughs> uh, but I have come to love this man and marry his wife. Love him because he feels, as all neighbors might do, a space in my own life and work that was vacant because I didn't have the talent to be, to be the performer that he was, and to bring alive the poetry that had moved me. John grew up with poetry, and in this book is a range of poets that touched him over the years and me. So I asked him on the program. We read some poetry. He read some poetry. I listened. The audience thrived, and it was a resounding success. So I'm going to take the liberty of the chair tonight, and before I get to his new and enthralling uh, biography of, of the first half of his career, I'm going to ask him unexpectedly to read uh, three of my favorite poems in here. Uh, one of them is The Owl and the Pussycat by Edward Lear, 
And I want to ask you to share with our friends here why this poem is one of your favorites. Well, it's a, it's a poem for young people, and I first experienced it as a little boy. And uh, I just included it because I think very often poetry has that effect. It sort of evokes child, childhood responses, childlike responses. If I read it, you'll, I'm sure it'll affect everybody the same way. It's, you say it's one of the most... One of the most fun poems to read of all, right? Yeah, and it's very dreamlike. I mean, such a thing could only happen in a dream, of course, an owl and a pussycat setting off to sea. So it's like a a dream poem. It's almost like a Maurice Sendak. All right, I'll read it. All right. (laughs) (laughs) The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money wrapped up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up to the stars above and sang to a small guitar, Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are, you are, you are, what a beautiful pussy you are. Pussy said to the owl, you elegant fowl, how charmingly sweet you sing. Oh, let us be married, too long we have tarried, but what should we do for a ring? They sailed away for a year and a day to the land where the bong tree grows, and there in a wood a piggywig stood with a ring at the end of his nose, his nose, his nose, with a ring at the end of his nose. Dear pig, are you willing to sell for one shilling your ring? said the piggy. I will. So they took it away and were married next day by the turkey who lives on the hill. They dined on mince and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible spoon. And hand in hand on the edge of the sand, they danced by the light of the moon, the moon, the moon. They danced by the light of the moon. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you and good night. How do you explain it? Merry, silly, and yet absolutely beautiful. Yeah, well, I, uh, who, Sound. Can, who can explain it? I, uh, I mean, using phrases like the moon to repeat, baying at the moon. Uh, I don't know. It, it has a, that's the first I've looked in the, at that poem for years, but it all comes rushing back. Right? I never heard language dances vividly as it did on, our, on my show when you read from your patron saint, Ogden Nash. Remember that? Night? <laughs> yes. All right, I'm going to ask you to do that now, and I want you to listen to the sound of the sound. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've only dared. And he, doesn't know, he didn't know he was going to read this. <laughs> I've only ever dared to write doggerel poetry, but I think there's a certain kind of nobility to doggerel po- poetry conferred by Ogden Nash. The title of this is No Doctors Today, Thank You. Anybody know it? Good. (laughs) (laughs) They tell me that euphoria is the feeling of feeling wonderful. Well, today I feel euphorian. Today I have the agility of a Greek god and the appetite of a Victorian. (laughs) Yes, today I may go forth without my galoshes. Today I am a swashbuckler. Would anybody like me to buckle any swashes? 
This is my euphorian day. I will ring Welkins, and before anybody answers, I will run away. I will tame me a caribou and bedeck it with marabou. I will pen me my memoirs. Ah, youth, youth, what euphorian days them was. <laughs> I wasn't much of a hand for the boudoirs. I was generally to be found where the food was. <laughs> Does anybody want any flotsam? I've got some. Does anybody want any jetsam? I can get some. I can play chopsticks on the Wurlitzer. I can speak Portuguese like a Berlitzer. I can doff or don my shoes without tying or untying the laces because I'm wearing moccasins. And I practically know the difference between serums and antitoxins. Kind people, don't think me purse-proud. Don't set me down as vainglorious. I'm just a little euphorious. <laughs> <laughs> Euphorious. It's not a word, but you know what it means when you hear it, right? <laughs> yes, and euphorian. Euphoria, exactly. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, and then we'll get to the conversation about drama, but on the other end of the spectrum that night you read for us that great eulogy, Shakespeare's great eulogy from Cymbeline, which I know was one of your favorites. You read it, did you not, at your father's memorial service? I did, I did. Yeah. All right, and... Uh, so I, I wanted you to read it tonight. Okay. Tell us about it. Well, it's, it takes place in, I think, Act 4 of Cymbeline. If any of you have not seen Cymbeline down at the Barrow Street Theater, I urge you to rush, rush, run, don't walk. It's a fabulous production performed by only six people. In fact, if you leave right now, you yeah. can know that. That's right, you could literally make it. <laughs> lose my audience. The wonderful thing about this, it's, it's the, to me the most beautiful thing Shakespeare wrote about death uh, and, and life, death and life and valuing life while it lasts. The superb thing about this, and it, it spe speaks just volumes about Shakespeare, is that the entire poem is a joke. This is a, a poem spoken or sung, it's called a song, over the body of a dead, a young dead man. The two people who are, who are speaking this poem are two brothers who don't know that the man, number one, is not dead. Number two is not a man. It's a woman dressed as a man. Number three is their own sister. They don't know any of this. It's a big joke on them. And yet they speak the most beautiful, deeply melancholy meditation on death and mourning because they have grown to love this, this fake man so deeply. That's all you need to know. And, and that, and you must see this production. It's a great illumination of the play. Fear no more the heat of the sun nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done. Home art gone, and ta'en thy wages. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. Fear no more the frown of the great, 
Thou art past the tyrant's stroke. Care no more to clothe and eat. To thee the reed is as the oak. The scepter, learning, physic must all follow this and come to dust. Fear no more the lightning flash, nor the all-dreaded thunderstone. Fear not slander, censure rash. Thou hast finished joy and moan. All lovers young, all lovers must, consign to thee and come to dust. No exorciser harm thee, nor no witchcraft charm thee. Ghost unlaid forbear thee, Nothing ill come near thee. Quiet consummation have, and renowned be thy grave. I, I wanted you to read that because, as you said, it is a joke. And yet, and, and the emotions evoked by it in the small audience in the play uh, were unwarranted by the reality. The reality is... He wasn't dead. It was a she, mm -hmm. and they were her brothers. But the emotion, true, powerful, and the emotion you evoked, emoted and evoked was true. What does that say about acting, that you can bring powerful and sincere emotions out of what is not real? Well, it's not just acting, but writing. It's... Uh, I mean, I think the richest drama, the richest uh, performance, the richest interaction between a performance and an act and an audience is very complex. It's suffused with all kinds of feeling. That's why I love, I love the irony and the joke of a beautiful kind of plangent poem spoken in an absurd moment. There's another great moment of Shakespeare where everybody gushries and moans and keens about the death of Juliet when she's not dead. Again, it's a total travesty of Greek, uh, of Greek tragedy because she's not dead. Uh, and the audience knows that. The audience knows something that the performers don't know. And it's a little insight into kind of the absurdity of life, the sort of deep emotional absurdity, emotional and comical absurdity of life. But it's not merely the words, is it? There's something else going on that the actor plays upon. Yeah, well, that's the actor's job to sort of channel the, to channel the writing or channel the, the situation. When did you know it was going to be your job? Well, I, I grew up in a theater family, as I describe in the book, uh, I didn't want to go into the family business, even though I loved the theater. I loved the magic of the theater and uh, the, the sort of beautiful world that my father had created in creating Shakespeare festivals. But I, 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 it was not my intention to be an actor. But I went off to college, and I'd become a very good actor just by pure osmosis. And so I was a campus star. I fell in with the acting gang almost immediately. And I went to Harvard. If there's some area in which you're the star, you go with that. <laughs> you know, well, and and uh, you had two roommates who were you had two roommates who were actors, Tommy Lee Jones and Al Gore. Well, actually, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's a 
that's a, an urban myth. They were not my roommates. It, they were a year younger, and I, I acted a lot with Tommy Lee, but I never even knew Al Gore till later. Uh, my roommate was David Anson, who is still my best friend and who's, who was the Newsweek movie critic for about 35 years and reviewed me about 10 times. We never knew that while we were... Uh, I didn't think I'd be an actor. He never dreamed of being a critic. But do that's you, the nature of still, college. Do you still hear Shakespeare in your father's voice? What a, what a lovely question. I, I, I do. In fact, I have, I have heard there are a couple of little scraps of recording tape that capture him from like the early 1950s when he was a much younger man than I, performing Brutus uh, in High Tragedy and Dr. Caius in Low Farce in The Merry Wives of Windsor. And it's unbelievably stirring for me to hear that um, because I, he, it's a distant memory, but yes, I do. I mean, he had a very kind of stentorian, grand and old-fashioned way of performing Shakespeare. A lot of it came from the fact that he and his companies acted Shakespeare out of doors with no amplification. So it was, you know, once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. It was literally yelled. They had to yell everything the way the Greeks had to yell and yet give it some substance of humanity. So it was big and stentorian. And I became a little kind of... Uh, snotty about it when I become an actor myself. I began to feel my father was a very old-fashioned actor, and I was I was more of the new, the, the sort of new age. Uh, and I was such a young asshole. Well, well he was. A <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, you grew out of it. Yes. <laughs> Listen to me now. <laughs> but he read to you. I mean, I, th this is a beautifully written book, drama, and the first chapter is so moving about your father that I had I have to dwell on him for a moment. Give us a quick bio of him, and then take us to that moment when he's failing, he's frail, he's given up, he's ready to die, and then something happens that brings the mystic cord of memory, snap, alive again, right? That's just what happened. Uh, well, my father, as I've told you, he was, a, he was a great Shakespearean, a great man of the theater, and he had a huge genial nature. He was very generous-hearted and had a great sense of humor. And when he was 86 years old, uh, he'd had an operation, he was very ill, and he was very depressed. He became a different person. And to all appearances, he'd lost the will to live. And I found myself in a situation where I was taking care of him and my mom for a whole month, trying to work out some sort of care for him in this at the moment of this crisis. And I, I knew my big job was to simply cheer him up, get him going again, and nothing worked. And I had the bright idea about halfway through my time with them to read them bedtime stories. Now, there was this big fat book called Tellers of Tales that he had used to read us stories when we were all little children. Well, I looked through their bookcases and I found that book. And that evening when they were all tucked into bed. I showed them the book, just like little children, told them to pick a story, the way we did. 
And the story he picked was Uncle Fred Flits By by P.G. Woodhouse, which I recognized immediately and remembered it was one of our favorite stories, but I'd totally forgotten it. So read these two paragraphs. Oh. You're so smart, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think preparation is smart. (laughs) I think it's necessary. I've thought long and hard about that moment. No, up here. Oh, here. (laughs) So I read it to them. I launched into the first paragraph. This is Uncle Fred flits by with only the dimmest memory of what I was reading. As the story unfolded, more and more of it came back to me. I was astonished. It was hysterical. I'd never read anything like it. It practically caught fire in my hands. The characters revealed themselves, and the complications kicked in. And one by one, I recognized all those moments that we had thought were so damn funny all those years ago. And then it happened. My father started to laugh. It was a helpless, gurgly laugh, almost in spite of himself. It was like the engine of an old car starting up after years of disuse. I kept reading and he kept laughing harder and harder until he was almost out of breath. It was the most wonderful sound I'd ever heard. And I'm convinced that it was some time during the telling of that story that my father came back to life. And yeah, well, this book is one story like that after another, <laughs> I tell you. Uh, and uh, it, it still touches you as it touches us. When, when did you recognize your own voice? When did you know that your voice could serve up a, a feast of emotions? Oh, I don't know, Bill. I mean... It's sort of cumulative, and, and that's a... You've, you've just put a very beautiful question to me, but it's a very large and grand idea. Uh, everything is incremental. I mean, there was an explosive moment, which I describe early on in the book, where I had my first show-stopping kind of explosive triumph on stage and made an audience cheer and roar and applaud so long that they literally wouldn't let me continue on to the next scene. Of all things, it was playing King Paramount in Utopia Limited (laughs) by Gilbert and Sullivan (laughs) when I was a sophomore at Harvard. And I always said it was during that ovation I decided to become an actor. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, literally waiting and waiting and waiting and... uh, it was just, there's, I don't know how many of you have had that experience. Probably not many. <laughs> but it's, it just, you think your heart's going to explode. It's like a drug. It, it, and it, it makes it, it it's, sort of, it, it's such an explosive, a joyous experience. It's like there's no way I could do anything else. Um, and, you know, that was at the very beginning of my career. It's happened a few times since but, then. But that was after your, if I remember correctly, that was after your first spoken line on stage in uh, Henry V? Yes. Right? Yeah. Well, you, remember that, you remember that line? Yes, I how, do. How old were you? 
well, I was about 15. It was, I had spoken a few lines, but only one, two, or three syllables long. <laughs> this was my first extended Shakespearean line spoken in a professional production. I was the French messenger announcing the uh, arrival of Exeter, the ambassador from England, to uh, the court of the Dauphin. I came out on stage, and, and in my tinny little 15-year-old voice, I said, Ambassadors from Harry, King of England, do crave admittance to your majesty. That was it. <laughs> and that's a pretty good imitation. <laughs> but that moment later on the stage when you felt ebullient and, and, and empowered by your own discovery, that... That attitude, that sense didn't prevail always. I mean, you write beautifully in here about your own neediness, your own uh, sense of cowardice, your own fears. I mean, all those qualities that I would have thought had suggested you might choose a career in politics, <laughs> but, but they didn't. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of similarities. But you, you, you that is, it wasn't all... Uh, uphill, easily uphill after that, was it? it it's never easy. Uh, I mean, it's one of the great... I mean, my, my profession is fraught with occupational hazards. Uh, and one of them is fully believing in yourself. You know, you know it, it takes a tremendous self-confidence, but I think all actors share a curious duality, th this crazy pendulum swing between a kind of arrogance and self-doubt, if not self-contempt. I mean, there, there are moments when you think what you do is so pointless and so, so useless, especially when, it's, when you're acting badly in, in a bad piece of theater or a bad movie. I mean, you're so down on yourself because it seems uh, so undignified somehow. And there, but that's one end of the pendulum swing. The other is when you have a, a success and you feel that you've reached people and moved people and uh, what you've done is important to them. You have enlarged their life. That makes you feel fantastic. But it's this crazy pendulum swing. Moments like that come along once every few years if you're very, very lucky. And yet that's what you're constantly looking for, opportunities to do that. I was very touched by several reviews of drama on Amazon. I like to go to Amazon and other sites to see what ordinary, if there's such a term, readers or how they're responding to, to books. And there was one this afternoon. I'll read you just a paragraph from it. She wrote, what comes across more indelibly, though, is the weird cocktail of emotions that propel a good actor forward. Ego and neediness, bravado and melancholy, and how they both marry an actor to the world and separate him. You Not know, I, I wrote that. That's what we journalists are looking into about Amazon and others. <laughs> By the way, I found out, and I'll tell the audience this, because you, your book can be bought now on Amazon as of 4.30 this afternoon for $16.91 discount. I also found out there that it weighs 1.2 pounds. <laughs> so, 
So did you expect to get paid by the word or the ounce? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but 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 the, that was that was wonderful. I mean, the, that was uh, that was putting car- far better what I was just trying to yeah, say. Yeah, and she goes on to say John is unstinting on that score, and also in his relationship with his family. And there's some magnificent, marvelous writing in here about family relationships. He makes you understand what a psychically rough business it is and how scarred the survivors become. Why is it a rough business psychically? Well, it's, you know, actors, if they, if they are given the chance to act, if they are lucky enough to get role, really good roles, roles that put them to work at what they truly want to do, they go to work using their own emotions. They deal in volatile chemicals. Uh, and they use their own emotions to try to illuminate uh, false emotions, uh, to, to give audiences a, a point of identification, to, to tell a story that means something to an audience. Well, you're just, when you put your, your own emotions to work that way, it's, you're very vulnerable to uh, all kinds of disruptions in your life. Um, sort of ill-advised romances. Uh, it, it, it played havoc with my, the end of my first marriage, which is all written about in there. I, I, was, I was an unformed person in many ways, and I, I was a f- much more successful actor early on than I was a human being. I sort of hadn't put it all together yet. And that's, you know, that's the scars they, that, that that woman writes about. How much, how did you weigh the extent to which you would hurt your first wife, if I may presume that that happened, by telling of these affairs you had at that period of your life? It was, I couldn't not tell her. It was exploding from me. Uh, uh, it was my life was in crisis, and I, I we were very close. I mean, I couldn't be false to her. Uh, I was being false to her, but I had to be honest with her about it. Um, what was the what was the crisis in your life? I think what I describe it, the simplest way I can describe it, as I I title an entire chapter adolescence. It was a kind of postponed adolescence. Part of my, my growing up, I, I was, because it was in a theater family, we were relocating so many times, it was this kind of desperate need to be a good boy, to be uh, impeccably, unimpeachably good boy. God forbid I do anything wrong. And, uh, and, I, and I sort of reached for adulthood at the age of 20. I got married at the age of 20, like this unformed young man. And... Uh, I describe it as a postponed adolescence. I reached my, my 30s and just things flew apart and the marriage flew apart. There's I, a great line. It's not verbatim, but it's close to it where you, you say that everyone experiences adolescence, but some people are lucky to experience it when they're adolescent. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> Yours was postponed, right? Mine was substantially you postponed. Know, it's interesting that when some people have a 
crisis, they resolve it with affairs, and some people have a crisis and go to seminary. I think you had more fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, des I, I describe it as ecstatic <laughs> chaos. <laughs> I don't see any evidence that you're carrying any scars. Well, no, but I mean, you know, scarred skin is a lot tougher. In fact, uh, Charles McGrath, writing in the New York Times, describes you as distressingly normal. <laughs> I th no, I think his phrase was disappointingly normal. Disappointingly normal. <laughs> <laughs> was that an insult? I took it as a compliment. <laughs> I'll settle for that any day. But this is what puzzles laymen who stand in awe of acting but un don't understand it. How can someone be so normal? when you have played such loopy roles. No, I'm, I'm serious. You're a football yeah. player turned transactional, transsexual, mm -hmm. a psychopath in Blowout, a killer in Cliffhanger, the evil prince in Shrek, a lunatic alien in Third Rock from the Sun. I mean, how do you hold on to your normality if you become authentically as an actor, dramatically authentic as an actor in those roles? Well, it's just, uh, there, to me, there's a very, very clear line between performing and not performing. And I try, uh, I think I'm a fairly secure ego. I'm a fairly together person. And that almost allows me to just sort of fly out there into the, uh, into the ozone when I'm acting. Um, I don't always do that, but uh, people know that I'm ready, willing, and able to, so they hire me for it. So, uh, I mean, I could, start, I could do the Trinity killer for you right now, but I would know I was acting, you know? You may not. <laughs> I don't think I could ever think of you as a killer. A psychopath, maybe, but not <laughs> And McGrath goes on and says, you are happier and m more well-adjusted than most. What makes you happy now? Mary, Mary, 30 years? Yeah, my marriage and my, my life with my wife makes me very happy. That's my default activity as soon as I finish acting and get home. Uh, to me, the, the, the very, very simple things in life, uh, mainly centered around cooking and feeding ourselves, uh, going to theater, uh, just experiencing life in a very simple, almost calm and low-keyed way. Just because the rest of my life is so extravagant and very, very public, it ma it's made me private to the point of exclusivity. My wife and I spend ten times more time alone with each other than we do with other people. And... Uh, it's it's a it's it's just become a wonderful thing in my life. She's I'm, she's the wife, she's the daughter of a Montana farmer. That's right, rancher. Uh, no, a farmer. farmer and uh, you we, spend. I know you disappear from the Kittleworth about two months a year. That's right. right. And you're out there. What do you we, do when you're out there? Well, we have a beautiful little lake house on Flathead Lake. This incredibly beautiful spot in northwestern Montana, and we have. The laziest, idlest days. We go uh, horseback riding at about 6 p.m. every night together and um, swim. Do you realize you're surrounded by armed militia? 
We're very, very I'm not sensitive to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy state. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But, but for us, it's our little island of sanity. McGrath also writes that with his big, almost hulking frame, and his, by the way, this is a marvelous review, and his long, quizzical-looking face, Lithgow on screen or stage effortlessly manages to seem like a panic-stricken creature imprisoned in the wrong body. <laughs> what would be the right body for you, Jane Fonda? <laughs> um, I've chosen Ryan Gosling. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. As you say that, it occurs to me, almost for the first time, how many times I've played um, one person inhabiting another person's body. Uh, Dick Solomon taking on the form of a human, uh, Dr. Lazardo in Buckaroo Banzai. I've done it. I've done it frequently. And uh, the world, according to Garp, a woman who literally changed from one body to another. Um, I have no answer for why I have done this so often. I, I, always, I, I always thought it might be because you had won the Tony, if I remember correctly for the longest, one of the longest nude scenes on, in the theater, right? Mm -hmm. What was the name of that? The, uh, the, the Changing the Room. The Changing Room, magnificent play by David Story. And were, was this your first time to appear naked in yes, public? Yes, it was. And it was my first time on Broadway. My opening night was on March 7th of 1973, and I won a Tony Award on March 25th. For it. That's like Barack Obama winning the Nobel <laughs> Prize before he takes the oath of office. Yes, but he never took his clothes off. <laughs> it, it turned me into an exhibitionist for the rest of my career. <laughs> what, what part of you won the award? <laughs> I'm not even going to dignify that. Today. I'm surprised at you, Bill. I'm surprised. <laughs> what, was it hard? Was it hard to actually... <laughs> I mean, this man. And this is Bill Moyers. <laughs> Was it difficult <laughs> to perform how, how many minutes on stage? It was a long, long seat. It was about a 10-minute scene. Uh, I mean, we all laugh about it, but in fact, I write very, very seriously about the whole phenomenon of performing naked, just because it's the extreme version of what an actor does. He exposes himself, and, and in, a, in, a, in its way, it's the most potent emotionally potent thing you could do on the stage is to completely expose yourself. Describe the scene. The Changing Room is a, a super realistic look at an afternoon in the changing room of a semi-pro rugby team in the north of England. These working class men with not very happy lives on a gloomy rainy day and they've all assembled to play rugby which is a murderously brutal sport. The first act is before the match the second act is the halfway point in the match, and immediately after that. And the third act is after the match when they've won. In act two, 
after the team rushes back out on the pitch, about five minutes later, one of the players is brought back into the changing room, very, very seriously injured. His face has been smashed, and that's the part I played, Kendall. He's covered with mud in his uniform, and he's, he, can't, he can, can't even see. And they have to take care of him like a baby. They have to they take him off stage and strip him down and plunge him in a bathtub, which is how rugby players bathed back in those days, these huge communal tubs, bring him back on stage, stark naked and glistening, and he has to be toweled off and dressed, socks, underwear, t-shirt, and bundled up and sent on his way. That's the entire scene. There's no plot to it, very, very few lines. All, the only sound is the roar of the crowd in the distance over the little speaker and the occasional sound of the uh, announcer announcing plays. And Kendall just sits there and occasionally mutters something. It was, I, I think, arguably the most powerful scene I've ever been involved in on stage. It was extraordinarily moving. And uh, because you'd gotten to know this character quite well in the first act, he was not a very bright guy. You know, his whole thing was this electric toolkit that he bought that he went showing his, his teammates. And they all tease him because he's been cuckolded by a couple of the men on the team and he doesn't even know it. So you know all about this. And just as he's going off into the cold, being bundled off to be taken home while the game is still on, he says, there's my electric toolkit, Luke. He's forgotten his electric toolkit. You know, it was, it was so moving. Uh, and also vis extremely visceral because of the blood and the mud and the wetness and the nudity. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I just think it, the audience was so taken aback. There was a good deal of titillation about this production because there were 15 rugby players in the course of the day in the changing room. That was 15 men who were nude twice in the course of this day. That was not titillating in the least. It was nothing but reality. And th this scene was the most real of all. I didn't see it, but I've read about it. Let me it. do it for you. Yeah, all right, do it. It's a... <laughs> it's a... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but what... what, 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 did, what intrigues me is that an American audience is not familiar with rugby. Certainly wasn't then. There you could now see rugby on cable channels, but was You were 27 by your own admission, not yet out of your adolescence, and yet you won the Tommy, Tony for getting inside this remarkably taciturn and, and almost reclusive, emotionally reclusive man. And I'm honestly curious, how do you do that? Well, uh, it's, it's simpler than you would think. I mean, uh, it's extraordinary how much the, the playwriting does for you. I remember reading the play and thinking, oh my God, I know exactly what this scene is going to be like, and I know how it's going to affect people. It was right there. Even though if you read changing, The Changing Room, there's not a line in it which is anything more than small talk. It's yeah. like the small talk among men dirty jokes and teasing and taunting and a few lines about the game. There's no well-made play dialogue at all. It's nothing but reality. 
but you get the sense of this extraordinary social organism and getting to know these 22 people and getting to know a little sliver of their lives. I just knew it when I saw it, and I knew exactly how to play it. Uh, and that's what happens with good writing. You know, I could, everything good that I've been in, I've had that reaction to the writing. Have you ever been asked to play Orson Welles? No, I haven't. I wonder because when you were young, as you may remember, you were often compared to the young Orson Welles, and you had your Tony at 27. He was a, a bright star on the firmament when he was just a young man. And I watched uh, Citizen Kane the other night. Perhaps I was influenced by the knowledge that I was coming here but, and seeing you again, but I thought, wow, he would make a great, great Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. You never thought about that? Not about playing him. Uh, you know, I'm not crazy about playing people that are very, very familiar to you. Uh, I played Abe Lincoln and FDR in my day. And the, I, 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 to me, it was far more important to me, or, or a greater experience to me playing Kendall or Gallimard and M. Butterfly, roles that came to life in front of the audience with nobody to compare them to. Because basically you're doing an imitation and the, Frank Langella did this miraculous job of making you forget Richard Nixon. I, I'm, you know, he was more Nixon than Nixon was. <laughs> it's like, wow! But that, to me, I, that's not something that excites me, pulling off that particular trick. I'm about to play Joseph Alsop oh, yes. in, in uh, my next play uh, in the spring. And it's wonderful because you're probably one of the very few people who knows anything about what he looks or sounds like. Uh, nobody knows. Joseph Alsop was the, one of the most prominent uh, columnists for a number of years. He and his brother Stuart wrote a joint byline and then they went their separate ways. And when I arrived in Washington as a very young man in 1960, uh, he could make or break you. Yeah. And so obviously those of us who didn't want to be broken uh, were in his orbit and influenced by him and tried to influence him. Why are you playing Stuart? Who's writing the play, David? Uh, David Auburn. Oh, it's David it? Auburn's second play. And why do you want to play Joseph Alston? Because he's written a brilliant play. I mean, it's all I can do to keep myself from overselling this play. Really? Because, uh, but I just think it's marvelous. What, what, what about it? It appeals to you. You didn't know Alsop, did you? No. I, I knew vaguely about the Alsops, but I didn't know the important events or the evolution in his politics or anything. Um, I am not going to tell you why I love this play so much, but you will see it because you're my friend and my neighbor. <laughs> well... You have to see it, and I will buy you your tickets to, is make, it a, is to make sure you see it. Is it a, is it a, is it a, it's, it's not a one-man play, is No, it? no, it's the a Susan play. Susan Mary show up? Yes, Susan she does. Mary was She's a very, very eccentric wife. Mm -hmm. They were quite a formidable well, pair. Well, he, he had an extraordinary story. It will be David Auburn's take on that story. Sure. Uh, so it may take some liberties with the precise history of Joseph Alsop, but nobody knows the precise history. Of yeah, that's right. We will. And you will. Yeah. Well, you'll know our version. And you'll, you'll see that he's a great hulking man. Yeah. Yeah. Like me. <laughs> Occupying the wrong body. <laughs> yes, exactly. He was only about this. You know, listening, to, you know, listening to you, John, I, I struggle with uh, something I 
you may have written it in here, I don't remember, but you, you've said or written that you actors don't think, you, you actors know this is a serious world, but you don't think you're in a serious business. And yet when I hear you talk, whether it's about poetry or, or, or that performance in, uh, in the changing room or Shakespeare, this is the most serious business of all, is well, making I, us feel. No, no. I, 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 yes, I, I consider it a very, very serious business and a very high calling. Uh, but I also, I also relish and value its frivolity, you know, its silliness. Half of what I've done is completely ridiculous. And that's, I, I love going back and forth between high seriousness and total nonsense. Uh, and mingling them, you know, it's it's one of the things that I that I love about my favorite roles are are v villains who have an inexplicable good streak, good people who do inexplicably vile things. So when are you uh, doing Nixon? <laughs> I was on Leonard Lope today, and he asked me to imitate Richard Nixon. This seems to be my destiny today. Did you? No, I didn't. I said I've forgotten how. <laughs> I used to play. But you go back and forth on these roles. You also go back from the stage to television to the movies. How seriously does acting differ for the stage from television from the movies? Well, it's like the mechanics are completely different. Uh, the, the same, you go through the same process, uh, but the, the, the most basic difference is that on stage, you're going through the story at the same time the audience is going through the story and you're in the same room with them. So it, it, there's a kind of uh, a chemical energy uh, that is not the same acting for a camera and for a camera crew. I mean, I make a sort of conscious choice to turn the crew into my audience, uh, get their attention and make them watch, make it that compelling. But it, you have to keep it you have to stay within the frame. I mean, you have to keep it, use your judgment, not overact. It's, it, it's also out of sequence. It takes place over the course of sometimes three, five, three, four, five months. And you don't, you've more or less forgotten all about it by the time everybody else is experiencing it. Not only that, but they take your performance and they dice it up into little pieces and put it back together and you don't even recognize it. It's like, what? That's not, that's not how we played that scene. What happened to that great moment? You know, that's, that's uh, whereas on stage, you own it. It's, it's you're taking the audience on your own ride or you and your, and your uh, company of actors. I saw you do that to a whole audience the, the, the night we saw the first time we came to see All Our Sons when you recently, what was it, two and a half years ago? Just about. You played yeah. Joseph, Joe Keller and, right. and, and, and All Our Sons and we went home and sat up until about one or two o'clock debating whether that could be translated to the cinema, to, this, to the screen. Mm -hmm. I don't think it could. Do you? Well, it would just be different. It's a very, very different experience and you always... I've always, I think it's almost a truism that if something is truly great on stage, it's not going to make it on film. You know, the, the M. Butterfly was not the film that it was on stage. Uh, same with novels. I think the great movies are made of not so great novels because, I don't know, there's, there's, a, there's a, 
they aren't treated with such sacredness, you know. It's very hard to make a great movie out of The Great Gatsby. Yeah. I was looking to see if the poem about the turret gunner is in here. I don't remember. Yeah, is, is it? In there. Yeah. Because we thought of that, you and I, after All Our Sons, because yeah. it's the story of a father who, during the war, had sold defective, knowingly sold defective aircraft material to uh, the British, to the Air Force. And several young men were killed as a result of that malfeasance on his part. And his son doesn't discover this for a long time. And in the conversation that John and I had about it, we were, we, we were reminded by that story of the young men who died in the war of the poem Tell us, you take it over. You're yeah, it's the death of the ball turret gunner, and, and you surprised me on that occasion, too, by asking me to read it. Um, yeah, it's... No, let me just read it. I should only tell you that the ball turret of a B-17 is the little ball at the back of the plane. Uh, and the ball turret gunner is, is sort of crouched, kind of womb-like inside this ball turret, extraordinarily vulnerable, easy target, and very, very dangerous. From my mother's sleep, I fell into the state, and I hunched in its belly till my wet fur froze. Six miles from earth, loosed from its dream of life, I woke to black flack and the nightmare fighters. When I died, they washed me out of the turret with a hose. Hearing that is like experiencing what happened on the stage that night with Joe Keller. Mm -hmm. Your memoir, which each of you really must read, it's beautifully written, it's wonderful stories and it gives you far more insight into the art of, of, of acting than, than I can do as a journalist. But it stops in 1979. Are you going to do anything after that? You mean, am I going to write another book? Yeah. I don't know. I finished the book and I thought, oh, thank God. I don't have to do this again. Uh, I wrote it, you know, I set out to write the memoir not quite knowing where I was going, how long, I, how far I would take it. But I realized very early on, I can't keep up at this rate and tell the whole story of my life. It would be a book that fat. Uh, and I began to see 1980-81 as the very logical end point because it's the years when my life completely changed. That, if my life were a play, that would be intermission. Um, so I, I began to see, see early on right toward that ending. After that, along came World According to Garp, Terms of Endearment, Footloose, uh, The Twilight Zone, Buckaroo Banzai. I became a movie actor who does theater instead of a theater actor who does movies. And I thought, good, let's just combine it to my young years. Let's make this a story about basically discovering who I am as an actor and who I am as a human being. Because 
after that, I became what I am today. I mean, I sort of became an adult. Besides which, I would feel writing about all those notable moments that I've already done a hundred press interviews for yeah. every one of them. That's, to me, that's not as interesting as those early years. Besides which, the strongest subplot of my book is a, it's also a biography of my father and a kind of tribute to him and a portrait of our father-son relationship. Uh, and that was a very logical time to bring that full circle to. Dylan's, Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gently Into That Night. Did you read that at your father's? No, you didn't. but I read it on your show. Oh, that's right. I was thinking about that. <laughs> let me ask for some questions from the floor. But before I do, before I do, let me tell you, read you from another Citizens Review in Amazon today. What comes across more indelibly, I read this, is the weird cocktail of emotions that propel a good actor forward. This book is as close as most of us will ever come to having a complex, nuanced actor take you into his confidence and show you around behind his eyes. It is as if you're sitting down for a long, languid, long-haul overseas flight and discover that your seatmate is John Lithgow. You have hours to kill, the bar cart is open, and he doesn't mind talking. What an unforgettable flight that would be and what a book this is. Wow. That's a citizen, right? Thank you. All right. We have a microphone, and you're welcome to come up and, uh, and, and address a brief question to John. Who will be first? I can't see because of the boldness of the lights, but I can hear you when you get close to the... Now I can see. Who has a question? Yes, sir. Evening. I'm wondering when you're on the stage in the theater and you're doing hundreds of performances, day after day, night after night, how do you keep it fresh? How do you, um, I imagine each performance is a little bit different. How do you, um, you know, keep interested all those days, all those evenings doing that? Well, okay. it's, uh, I get asked that question a lot and, I've, and I frequently answer with this wonderful story. Uh, I think it was attributed to Sir Thomas Beecham when he was guest conducting the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra and they were rehearsing for Brahms' second symphony to be performed later that evening and he just couldn't get any energy and interest out of the musicians or not nearly enough because they'd played it so many times and he stopped and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I know you've played Brahms' Second Symphony a thousand times and you have no special interest in playing it again tonight. But there are two people in the audience tonight that I want you to play for. The people who are hearing Brahms' Second for the first time and the person who's hearing it for the last time. When you're acting, you're trying to give them an experience. Yes, you want a great experience too, but it's all about them. And it's making it vivid for them. For some reason, that particular challenge keeps me constantly rejuvenated. I, yes, there are, there are shows that have gone on too long and I've wanted them to end. 
But whenever I get to that point, I just try to remind myself of that. Yes, it's old hat to me. It's not old hat to them. My job is to make this happen for the very first time. And I think good actors, that's what they do. And you can see it up on stage. They're experts at making it happen for the first time. Uh, it's a kind of magic act they do. You know, and, and, you, and I love the craft of it. I love circus performers, who, or circus clowns, who've perfected a five-minute-long routine, that, and that's all they performed for the last 30 years, because it's just dazzling. And, uh, you know, you're, just, you're after creating that magic. Another question. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm not an actor, uh, but I did play around in college a little bit. And um, there was one moment I had a minor role in a Moliere play. And you know how Moliere craziness happens and then some messenger from the king comes in and reads a long monologue and resolves all the conflicts in the play and everything's fine. Well, my role was that messenger and I came on one night and, um, and I completely blanked my lines. <laughs> and, uh, and I was standing there and everybody in the audience is waiting for the play to go on and I just knew that I could totally screw it up because I, if I did not remember, the, and after a few, what was probably just a couple seconds, seemed like hours, uh, the lines came back to me. But I'm wondering if you not just forgot your lines while you were on stage, but in some sort of, well, it's not to be awkwardly embarrassing, but very dramatic, significant kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a nightmare, what you went through. But it's a nightmare that has happened to me plenty. Uh, I mean, I, for, I actually forgot my words in the middle of All My Sons quite recently. Uh, and I was on stage with about five people. And it was a scene that I was, I had to run that scene and I had no idea where I was. And it's completely terrifying. I, you don't know, it, it seems absurd. All you're doing is, is acting for people and for very forgiving people, but you just feel like, you're going to have a heart attack and die on the spot. I mean, <laughs> you remember it well. Somehow or other, you muddle through, and, but, but your body is just trembling. What uh, happened then? Did the music come back? I mean, did the words Yes, we, we got back on track, uh, God knows how, because there was no way they could help me. They were all looking at me like... What are we supposed And it went on and on and on. And the audience didn't notice it at all. You know, they thought it was an extremely powerful moment. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so, <laughs> and it was, believe me. <laughs> it's like Charles Carroll once said to a group of us at CBS News when I was there, once you learn to fake it, everything else is easy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Another question. Come right on up. Yes, ma'am. Back there from, here's one, and you come on down and wait. So we'll save a little travel time. First of all, thank you for a wonderful evening. This is really lovely. I know you spent a year studying in England, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering why you did that and what you got out of that experience. Well, you'll just have to read the book. No, no, it's, uh, no I mean, there's a good, uh, there's two or three chapters about those two years in England. Uh, it was a very logical thing to do, to go for a Fulbright. I didn't know whether I'd get it or not, but I did get it. 
And it was the Fulbright went to one man and one woman to spend a year in the D group at Lambda, a London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, a program tailored for overseas students, most of them American. It was like a British Academy acting training horse pill. You just, it was like three or four years worth of training all in one year. And a lot of the people in it were actors who had, had already spent some time in the profession, although we were all young, under 30, certainly. I'd never been to England. I had the feeling that um, there was a lot I still had to learn. And my experience of Lambda, which was a fantastic year, it was a great, great program in those days, and it still is, was to really strip you down and build you back up. Uh, sort of peel away habits. My version of Shakespeare came very much from uh, my father's uh, sort of company style, which was, as I've described, it was kind of uh, loud and direct uh, and with a huge emphasis put on speed and energy. You know, loud and fast. It was the sort of loud, fast version of Shakespeare. And it had tremendous... I mean, it, this is... I, didn't, I don't mean to diminish it. It was really great. It was, it, was, it was terrific, Shakespeare. But I felt there was a lot more I could learn by actually going there. I had a kind of reverential regard for, for the knights and dames of British theater. And I wanted, it was an amazing year, a couple of years in British theater. It was when Peter Hall, Trevor Nunn, Peter Brook, all these people were working at a very, very high level. Uh, great, great actors were constantly working in the, at the National, the RSC, and the West End. And I sort of wanted to experience all that. And I was, I was eager for the adventure of it all. I, I just wanted to see England. And I got the Fulbright. And those are the reasons I did it. Uh, I would say that the, uh, I describe two things that happened to me. The downside of it was, number one, the very simple business of coming back with this fruity English accent that I, <laughs> that I hadn't intended to acquire, this sort of weird hybrid middle Atlantic accent that I had to purge my first year back. The other thing was it, it made me into a kind of Shakespeare snob. The extraordinary thing about my career is I was in 20 Shakespeare plays by the time I was 20 years old. I've only done Shakespeare three times since then. Twice in American theater, the last of those two was in 1975. Wow. And the third was going back to England and performing with the Royal Shakespeare Company four years ago. It's just made me too much of a snob and I, I'm I look at all the roles that I've turned down over the years and it makes me wistful and a little embarrassed. I really should have been doing more Shakespeare. Yes. Hi, you mentioned earlier that um, part of the ability to create characters comes from the playwright. And I was just wondering what playwrights have inspired you in your life and, and playwrights that you think create good characters. Well, I've had these few wonderful uh, experiences. The Changing Room was one of them. M. Butterfly was another, working with David Henry Huang. Uh, 
I love working with playwrights themselves. I love the process of doing new plays. I love working on uh, Sweet Smell of Success with John Guare, for example, a musical that he wrote the book for. Uh, you know, the, the, the playwrights that... I mean, I've just listed some of the really, really good pieces of theater I've done. Um, and, and, and there are those great revivals, those great classic plays, too, that you, you sort of discover how great they are when you do them. I remember dusting off an old George Bernard Shaw one-act that I'd done in a high school workshop a few years ago to memorialize an actor, dear actor friend David Dukes, who had died way too young. I gathered together actors who had worked with David, and I thought, well, let's do Overruled, four-character Shaw one-act. I remember that that was pretty good. And I got Alex Kingston, Annette Benning, Renee Aubergenois, and myself. We performed Overruled. We just read it through in my living room, and then we performed it. And it was fantastic. It was like you forget how great George Bernard Shaw is and, and what an amazing manipulator of an audience he is. There were these astonishing moments in this trifling little one-act play about wife-swapping that completely stopped the show with laughter. It was like, whoa! You just forget. And it only comes to life, uh, you know, it's like granular instant coffee. You can't, you can't just put it in your mouth, but when you add water, you know, it's like <laughs> you add the actors and it just becomes amazing. Now, that's a Thank pretty you. strange... Good question. The story is told, whether it's apocryphal or not, I don't know, but a lady came up to George Bernard Shaw at a cocktail party in London during World War I and said, Mr. Shaw, why are you not at the front fighting to save civilization? And he said, Madam, I am the civilization they're fighting to save. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, if we may follow the arc back to the beginning, I want to add, we, John told you the story of how he came to serve his father when he was in the slough of despondency and perhaps even beginning his descent into death and how reading from that wonderful book, A Teller's Tale, Right? Have I got that Tellers right? Tellers of Tales. Tale, tellers of Tales tale, uh, revived him. And we stopped there. And now I want to close the evening, if you will, before John signs his books, with your concluding uh, three paragraphs about that experience. And it's the opening of the book. It starts okay, there. Great. <clears throat> uh, this is what I started to read before. I've thought long and hard about that moment the moment of reading to my dad. Starting the next day, dad rallied. His health and his good spirits began to return. He lived another year and a half, 18 precious months. That may not sound like a long time, but it was much longer than any of us had dared to hope for. Better still, it was a happy time. The cloud of doom that had darkened his thoughts for so long finally dispersed. Those 18 months provided a graceful coda to his life. They were months filled with visits from family, visits from friends, reminiscences, taking stock, fond farewells, more stories, 
more laughter. And I can't help thinking that it was Uncle Fred that got him going again. It was as if my father had fed off the irascible spirit of a long-dead author's fictional creation, that fabulous flim-flam artist, Uncle Fred himself. Acting is nothing more than storytelling. An actor usually performs for a crowd, whether for a hundred people in an off-Broadway theater or for millions of moviegoers all over the globe. Reading to my parents on that autumn evening in Amherst was something else again. It was acting in its simplest, purest, most rarefied form. My father was listening to Uncle Fred flits by as if his life depended on it. And indeed it did. The story was not just diverting him. It was easing his pain, dissolving his fear, and leading him back from the brink of death. It was rejuvenating his atrophied soul. Lying next to him, my mother could sense that by some mysterious force, her husband was returning to her. Before he went to sleep, Dad thanked me for the story as if I'd given him a treasured gift. But he'd given me a gift, too. It was the gift of a father's love. I was 56 years old and had known him all my life. In all those years, our relationship had changed kaleidoscopically. We had been up and down, happy and sad, close and distant. Our fortunes had risen and fallen, ebbed and flowed, rarely at the same time. But in all those years, I'd never felt as close to him, or ever felt as much love for him as I did that night. He had given me another gift, too, although he never lived to see it bear fruit. The period I spent with my parents was one of the most significant in my life. In that memorable month, that Woodhouse story was the most memorable hour. I had spent my entire adult life acting in plays, movies, and television shows. I had told stories. I'd had a gratifying, fun, and prosperous career. Only infrequently had I paused to plumb the mysteries of my peculiar occupation. That night, however, everything came into focus. Sitting at my parents' bedside and reading them a story, trying to help two old people feel better, came to seal, seem like a distillation of everything my profession is about. In the years to come, my thoughts kept returning to that evening, even after my father was long gone. Finally, spurred on by the events of that night, I decided to write this book. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.